This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, The Heart of Yearning, recorded September 18, 1994, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. One way to think of a spiritual path is a highway. A highway that carries us from bondage to suffering and death, to freedom from suffering and death. And you can say this highway has two major lanes, love and truth. And you can travel on either of these lanes in the beginning. Ultimately, the two lanes merge, however. Anybody who starts following truth from a spiritual point of view will discover love. And anybody who's following love will discover truth. So you can begin starting from either of these two positions, so to speak. Some people begin with an intuition of God, of the divine, which speaks immediately to their heart. Maybe uh, it's something that began in childhood, or very often begins in childhood, because children are much more receptive to these things. The question doesn't arise, is there a God or not, or do I believe in God or not, because that person already has an experience of God. And an experience of that divine love may just be a little spark, may just be uh, something that happens once in a while, but they start following that. And they eventually discover truth, because in following this love for God that is awakened, aroused, they naturally want to get to know what this is more. You know, just like in a human relationship. You might meet somebody briefly, and, and you might fall in love with them. And you want to know them more. You want to get to know them more. Whatever we love, we want to get to know more. But you don't really have to have any experience of God or of love or of spiritual longing or any of these things to go on a spiritual path. All you really need is a, a curiosity to know the truth about this world, about yourself. You don't have to believe in anything. In fact, an awful lot of the spiritual path is uh, getting rid of old beliefs you carry around. But if you really seriously ask yourself the question, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What is this all about? And devote yourself to an investigation of that question. You will eventually arrive at the divine. However, anyone who starts from this position of seeking truth and gets into a spiritual path is going to begin with a lot of intellectual work. Questioning their own beliefs, uh, investigating their own experience, matching against their beliefs, and so forth. And when your old beliefs start to crumble, most people are anxious to build a new house of beliefs. And then they get into all sorts of theological and uh, philosophical thoughts. And, well, if it isn't this, what is it? And so forth. The truth that sets you free, as Jesus said, the knowledge of that truth, however, is not a conceptual knowledge. It's something beyond that. But people who begin with a pursuit of truth, at some point, if they don't experience this direct contact with God, which awakens this passionate yearning, 
often start to get bored. It just seems like a big head trip and it all becomes dry. The practices become dry. They become kind of mechanical. Uh, you're going around and around in your head. It's not until you uh, touch this well of uh, real yearning, longing, love, this fire, that really the path sort of takes off. So the question is how to arouse this yearning, this longing? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to arrange an introduction to God. You have to meet God. You know, it's really just like supposing you're somebody who's lonely and you're looking for another human being to love. You got to go someplace where there are likely partners for you, right? That would probably depend on what your interests are. If you have strong spiritual interests, you'd probably go to a church or a temple or something. If you have literary interests, you might go to some of these bookstores where you could hang out now and have espresso and stuff and, you know, get to meet people. So whatever your interests be, if I don't know, if you're interested in rafting, you'd probably go on some rafting trip, you know. So where, the question is, do you go to meet God? It's a very practical question. Well, this is what St. Ephraim of Syria has to say about it. Here within you are the riches of heaven, if you desire them. Enter within yourself and remain in your heart, for there is God. Very simple. Lali Shwari, great Hindu mystic, said, Meditate on him. Live in your heart. Don't look for him here and there, wondering where is God. Live in your heart. Interesting, here we have a Christian and a Hindu. Rumi, who's a great Sufi poet, writes, Why keep on knocking from door to door? Go knock upon your heart's door. Why keep seeking a drink from this person and that when you're up to your knees in water? In other words, most people are looking for God. They're like someone who's looking for a drink. You know, they're knocking on every door down the street here. And he's saying that you won't find it out there, knocking on other people's door. You find God in your own heart. But if this is true, if God is in our heart, why don't we know this? Maybe we should first ask the question, what is the heart that's being talked about here? Everybody says God's in the heart. What is the heart? Your feelings. Your feelings. Okay, we associate hearts with feelings, right? Just look at our language. We say, uh, oh, it touched my heart, right? We also say things like, someone broke my heart. When we say that, it's often more than just a matter of surface feeling, isn't it? If you've been deeply in love with someone and they broke your heart, it's quite devastating. It goes really to the core of your being. Has anybody had their heart broken really badly in their life? Well, you know that feeling. I mean, you can be suicidal. All of life can seem worthless. That's how deep this sense of heart can be, and this is what the mystics are pointing to. In uh, various different languages, they have different words for it. Um, 
For instance, in Chinese, the word is sing. I'm not pronouncing that right, I don't think. It's translated as heart sometimes and translated as mind if you read, uh, you know, Taoist poetry and so forth. It's really perhaps more akin to our word soul in the sense that it's, it has to do with feeling, it also has to do with thinking, but it's something deeper. It's the core of all that. The trouble with our word soul is it comes to us with a lot of theological baggage because we think of some entity, you know, flying around after death and all that. But if we think of soul the way poets use it more, you know, it touched my soul, we could also say. You know, it's something really deep. It's something where, in a certain sense, both feeling and thought come from, but feeling more directly. Something that speaks to your soul may not make rational sense, but it may touch your soul, may touch your heart. There are a lot of practices in many traditions that use the physical heart as a focus for practice. The instructions are to visualize a deity in the heart or something like that. But this is not to be confused with the heart that's being talked about here. Truly speaking, it means go to the core of your being. God dwells within the core of your being. This is what Jesus said when he said, you know, God is within you. A lot of us think we've touched the core of our being or we've, we've come pretty close, for instance, in a relationship where someone's broken your heart. We don't necessarily, though, automatically see God there. So why not? What's the problem? Jesus gives us a clue. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So the heart that we normally experience, the self that we normally experience when we look inside, is somehow cluttered. Catherine of Genoa says, God's love manifests itself in a greater or lesser degree according to the impediments that block his love. In other words, God's love is always there. But there's something in us, some impediment, that blocks it. And in fact, she makes almost a mathematical ratio out of it. The more impediments, the less degree it'll manifest. St. Gregory of Nyssa writes, You must wash away the dirt that has come to cling to your heart like plaster. Then your divine beauty will once again shine forth. Interesting about this, once again shine forth. In other words, it isn't something new, really, to be discovered. I mean, it may seem new to you, but it's something that's always been there. But it's been sort of, as he said, plastered over. You know, in uh, Italy, there are these Renaissance paintings by great masters that other people have painted over the, the canvas, used the canvas and done their own paintings. And so there are projects going on in Italy to find these mediocre paintings, and then to very carefully remove the later painting, and then you reveal a Michelangelo or a Raphael or something like that. And it's very similar to what a spiritual practice is about. It's somehow removing these impediments, as Catherine of Jennifer calls it. And then what happens? Rumi says, Once the mirror of your heart has become pure and clear, you will see pictures from beyond the domain of water and clay. Water and clay is a sort of a standard phrase in Sufism, means this material world, this, this mundane world, the world of our everyday experience. You will see pictures from beyond. 
something you've usually never seen before. Not only pictures, but also the painter. Not only the carpet of good fortune, but also the carpet spreader. So, the carpet spreader, of course, is a metaphor for God here, the painter. Not only do you start to have spiritual experiences, insights, perhaps visions, and so forth, but even beyond that, eventually, what is it that manifests all of this world of form, spiritual and mundane? So, the clue here is that somehow we have to remove this dirt, these impediments, this plaster. We have to purify the heart. But what are these impediments? What is this dirt or this plaster? Anybody got a clue? Selfish behavior. Selfish behavior. What did Jesus say when uh, he was criticized by the Pharisees for eating off plates that hadn't been blessed or whatever. He said, you fool, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth, because what comes out of your mouth comes from your heart. And if your heart is full of, I've forgotten his exact words, murder or jealousy or whatever, that's the problem. It's not, it has nothing to do with, you know, correctly cleaning a, a, a cup or something. This is really a problem. What's in the heart? Anger, hostility, selfishness, all these things. Why? Why should they be a problem? Well, let's say you had a date with someone who was a prospective spouse, lover, and you spent all your time looking in mirrors. You went to the restaurant and you stopped to look in the car mirror to see how you look, you know, and you got to the restaurant and you ran off to the bathroom mirror to see how you look, you know, and you're sitting at the table and you get out your little mirror to see how you look. You're never going to see your date. You're never going to get to know your date. You're completely self-absorbed. It's really quite similar. When you look in your heart and all you see is yourself, you cannot see God. It's self-interest, the ego self here, not the deep true self that your heart is, but that uh, surface self, if you like, reflected in the heart that distracts you, hides God, veils God, that constitutes the impurity, the plaster, the covering. So what we must do is purify the heart of self, ego self. But it's very interesting. What is the ego? When we ask that question of ourselves, and when we go look, we don't find really any solid thing there. The whole Buddhist path centers around going to look for yourself. You think you are some separate self, and the challenge is, well, go look for it. And in most Buddhist traditions, you spend most of your time trying to find this thing that you call self, that you refer to all day long, what I want, what I like, what I don't want, what I don't like, what I should do, what I shouldn't do, da-da-da-da-da, all day long. And yet, what does this word refer to? But what we do find, if we go look, are specific phenomena arising. Something quite concrete. And this is very important because people uh, think that they're going to purify the heart of their self 
and the self is just a big amorphous abstract thing. But if you go look in your heart, what do you find? Well, you find sensations, for instance. We just all sit here in meditation this morning and you become aware of bodily sensations. The bodily sensations aren't in the heart, but watch carefully what happens. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, that's painful. Oh, I like that. That's nice. A little twinge, annoying. Maybe a little muscle relaxes. Oh, I like that. This is what is selfishness. We don't see the sensation. What we're really concerned with is whether we like it or not. Oh, let me try and cultivate that sensation. Oh, let me try and get rid of that sensation. Thoughts arise. Again, it's not the thought itself, but what is our relation to it? I like that thought. Oh, that's that's quite brilliant, that thought. That's a very valuable thought. I can use that thought. What's that thought? Oh, I don't like that thought. It's our relationship to our own thoughts. Trying to cling to some and push some away. Concerned about them, trying to rework them, polish them up, hide them. Not just the formal thoughts that arise, memories that arise. There you are sitting there in nice, peaceful meditation, and suddenly some memory arises about some terrible thing you did when you were five years old. Oh, it ruins your whole meditation. Or some wonderful memory arises about someone you uh, were in love with, I don't know, you went off to Hawaii with, and then your mind starts drifting off, recreating that, trying to pull all that back in. Our feelings. Boy, we love some feelings and we hate other feelings, don't we? Are we always trying to manipulate our feelings? Always trying to put ourselves in situations where only nice feelings will arise and avoid situations where bad feelings will arise? Whether they're outward physical situations or inward situations. Oh, I don't want to think about that because this arouses all sorts of bad feelings. Oh, I like to think about that because this arouses nice feelings. Constantly, constantly, out of the heart, so to speak, this selfishness arises that has two sides to it, the pushing away and the clinging, pushing away and clinging. And it's all based on me, I, mine. We look in the heart and all we see is this I, me, mine. No wonder we don't see anything else. Al-Ghazali says, the purity of the heart is the sinking of the heart completely in the recollection of God. Recollection of God, remembering God, uh, being attentive to God, focusing on God. Not thinking about yourself, not thinking about what you like, what you don't like, what you prefer to be doing, uh, what you don't want to have to do, and all those things. When attention is completely focused on God, there is no thought of self. We get some inkling of this, by the way, when uh, we do fall in love with somebody. If we really deeply fall in love with them, a major part of our concern suddenly goes to their welfare. What we find ourselves thinking about all day is not ourselves, but them. When you're really in love with someone, you can't get them out of your mind, even if you want to which is obsessive. 
This is the power of spiritual love, spiritual yearning, spiritual longing. It suddenly inflames the whole personality, so to speak. So how to arouse this? Well, anybody who sits down and just tries to sink down completely in the recollection of God will find it isn't easy. And just in the little breath meditation that we do here Sunday morning, you find it's not easy just to stay on your breath. Why? Because there are distractions. Constant distractions arising. The self is constantly distracting you from God. It's this very simple principle here. So what can we do about it? Do we just have to sort of wait around until God strikes us on the head with a, uh, a bolt of love and awakens us? No. There are things you can do. There are practices you can do. They all require application of four principles, which those of you who have been to the center before have heard many times. Attention, paying attention. Notice this is the first thing right here, to pay attention. Making a commitment to this, practicing detachment, and ultimately practicing surrender. So let's see how these would apply very specifically. For instance, this sinking of the heart in the recollection of God, uh, one, of the, one of the most common ways to accomplish this is through prayer, a very concrete practice. Here's what the Hasidic masters say about prayer. Speak the word simply. Devote all your attention to the meaning of your prayer. It is this true devotion that will bring you to the love and fear of God and will really set your heart aflame. That's quite simple advice, isn't it? Pick any prayer, it doesn't matter. And say it with complete attention, complete concentration. Put yourself into it completely. Don't let your mind wander off to, uh, you know, your vacation to Hawaii coming up next month. Or even how you're going to pay the rent. There are appropriate times to worry about how to pay the rent. But when you're praying, it's not an appropriate time to worry about how you're going to pay the rent. Put yourself completely into the prayer. And this will set your heart on fire. Again, if you try it, though, it's not so easy. Theophane the Recluse, an Eastern Orthodox Christian, writes, Thoughts jostle one another like swarming gnats, and emotions follow on thoughts. In order to make their thought hold to one thing, the fathers used to accustom themselves to the continual repetition of a short prayer. In this manner, their thought clung to the prayer and through the prayer to the constant remembrance of God. Remember Al-Ghazali talked about sinking the heart in the total uh, recollection of God, remembrance of God. Al-Ghazali is a Sufi. This guy is an Eastern Orthodox Christian. They talked about the same thing. Notice I'm switching from tradition to tradition here. It just doesn't matter. So you start to try to focus on God and you find you're distracted. Well, pick a prayer, concentrate on the meaning of it, and say it over and over. Keep it going. And as your thought clings to the prayer, so the prayer becomes, in a sense, a mini-bridge to God. 
The Cloud of Unknowing, which is a Catholic Christian mystical manual, says, Choose a short word, such as God or love. Then fix it in your mind so that it will remain there come what may. Use it to subdue all distractions. Should some thought go on annoying you, demanding to know what you're doing, answer with this one word alone. Do this, and I assure you these thoughts will vanish. Eastern Europe, Western Europe, and Islam, everybody's discovered the same thing, the same little technique, the same practice here. It's not that difficult. Or let me put it that way, it's not that complicated. It may turn out to be quite difficult to do the practice. It's very simple, though, the practice. You don't have to do a lot of complicated uh, meditations and visualizations and go through lots of complicated rituals and so forth. They don't even prescribe a particular prayer for you. If you read some of these books, they'll make some suggestions. It doesn't matter. Pick one word, God, love. What strikes you? That's all. But it's not simply a matter of sitting down and praying formally once or twice or however many times a day you decide to do it. Rumi says, after all, the purpose of this ritual prayer is not that you should stand and bow and prostrate yourself all day long. Its purpose is that you should possess continuously that spiritual state which appears to you in prayer, whether asleep or awake, writing or reading. In all your states, you should never be empty of the remembrance of God. So this practice of the uh, formal prayer, the ritual prayer, is simply a practice to awaken at least some of this longing, this yearning, this remembrance of God. But then it must be carried over into your whole life. This is where the second great principle comes in, and that is commitment. Making a commitment to this process of remembrance or recollection. This is one of the mistakes that many, many people who consider themselves religious make. They go to church on Sunday, and maybe they say prayers at night, or maybe they say prayers in the morning and night or whatever. Or maybe they say prayers five times a day, as they do in Islam. And then they discharge their obligation, so to speak. They think of it as an obligation to God. They don't think of it as a practice of purifying the heart to arouse and awaken this love and this longing and this yearning. It's not an obligation. It's not discharging some obligation. It's a practice, in a certain sense, for your own benefit. You know, I mean, I'm speaking a little poetically here, but God doesn't need your prayers. If you want to think of God a little anthropomorphically for a moment. The prayers aren't for God's sake. The prayers are for your sake. Okay. How can then we make this into a full-time commitment, not just a once-in-a-day sort of thing, this remembrance of God? Well, again, there's several ways. Very practical and not complicated at all. One is called, in the Christian tradition, unceasing prayer, and in India it's called japa. And it's exactly the same thing. Here's what Ananda Moyamai, a great Hindu mystic, says. While attending to your work with your hands, keep yourself bound to him by sustaining japa, the constant remembrance of him in your heart and mind.
Joppa is taking one of God's names, just as the author of the Cloud of Unknowing said. In Hindu, it would be Krishna or Gopal or, you know, Shiva or one of many, many, many countless names of God and just saying it over and over and over. Or maybe a little mantra. And, you know, as you go through your day, you say it over and over. And of course, you know, in the beginning, you find you probably have to interrupt that to carry on conversations and so forth. The minute the conversation is over, you go back to the mantra. And what happens is eventually the mantra takes over and runs in the back of your head. And it will go on even when you're engaged in conversations with people. It's not the prayer itself that is important, however. It's not just the mechanical repetition. As Theophane says, Constant repetition is not required. What is required is a constant aliveness to God, an aliveness present when you talk, read, watch, or examine something. If you can cultivate this aliveness, if you can just have this remembrance, it doesn't have to be the remembrance of a word, but this general sense that everything you're doing is, as Theophane would express it, in the presence of God, you can dispense with a formal little prayer. If you can't do that, try the formal little prayer. These are devices to aid you, you see. A second way to cultivate this constant remembrance of God is in relationships. Now here's what Anandamayamai says. She says, to criticize people or to feel hostile towards anyone harms oneself and puts obstacles into one's path to the supreme. Why? Why should that be the case? I mean, Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? He says, love your enemies, you know. When they persecute you, don't persecute them back. When they insult you, don't insult them back. Respond with love. Yeah. Because when you do that, you separate yourself from them and from God and them from God. Right. It's a manifestation of your selfish concerns. You're worried about yourself. You feel persecuted. You feel put upon. And so you respond out of that self-protection. Somebody insults you and you, you find yourself insulting them back. So, oh, you can turn this into a great spiritual opportunity. Where is this coming from? It's coming from that selfishness in my heart, isn't it? So when you see this, you, here you are, continuing to be focused on yourself, attentions on yourself, responding from a center of self. The trick here is not to go put yourself down and feel guilty and bad, say, oh, what a selfish person I am. The trick here is to pay attention. If you've cultivated that attention, you see what's going on, and then what can you do about it? Here's what Anandamoya Mai says. If someone does something bad, you should feel nothing but affection and benevolence towards him or her. Think, and she gives you a very specific thing to think here. Lord, this is also one of thy manifestations. The more kindly and friendly you can feel and behave towards everybody, the more will the way to the one who is goodness itself open out. Again, you see, she gives you something very practical. When you find yourself angry at someone, uh, at odds with them, resenting them, and so forth, just stop for a moment. And look at that person think, this is one of God's manifestations. Right there. 
what does this do? You see, it takes the mind off yourself and how you've been hurt, how you've been insulted, how you've been abused, and it focuses it right on God through the appearance of this person. You don't have to pretend the person is a good person. The person may be a rotten son of a bitch. But they are nevertheless a manifestation of God. They're nevertheless a form of God. You're not asked to love the rottenness about people. You're asked to love people because they are a manifestation of God. Rotten or not, good or bad. You're asked to, to actually see that they are. Then you will. Love and truth here, they go together. When you meet God in another person, then you can love them. You cannot love another person wholly and completely just as a human being. If you ever try to give your complete love to another human being, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Only God can receive that sort of love from us. Whenever we put all our love into another human being, we're asking that human being to play the role of God, and that human being cannot do it. But when you can see the human being as a form of God, and when that love goes to that human being, in a certain sense through that human being, there's God there, and God can receive it all. Again, though, this is a practice. You, the way you discover this is through specific concrete practices. This is the point I'm trying to make through all this. The third way that you can remember God all the time is in work, any sort of work you perform. And Theophane the Recluse says about this, the question arises, how can we hold the Lord in our attention while busy with various activities? Isn't this the kind of question you would ask when you hear a teaching like, remember God even when you sleep, you know, writing and walking and so forth? You say, how can that be done? Well, he's going to give you some advice. He says, this is how it can be done. Whatever your occupation, great or small, Reflect that it is the omnipresent Lord himself who orders you to perform it and who watches to see how you are carrying it out. If you keep this thought constantly in mind, you will fulfill attentively all the duties assigned to you and at the same time you will remember the Lord. Now some of you might think, well, that, you know, that's a little naive, this idea that there's a big daddy in the sky watching me and he's assigned me all these duties. Theophane, the recluse, knows that God is not a big daddy in the sky. He knows that God is an unspeakable mystery that cannot be captured by any words or form. But this is a device that you can use. Your, your thought moves in the realm of form. Your thought is made of form. Your thought makes form, in fact. But instead of just throwing up your hands and says, oh, I can't remember God all the time. This is impossible. You might want to try this. It's just a little device. It's like, what do they call? There's a technical uh, term for this. A mnemonic device. Mm -hmm. Is that what it's mnemonic? Mnemonic. A mnemonic device. It's a little drama you play for yourself just to help you to remember. So there you are doing the dishes and all the guests that you invited over have left and they've left you with this big pile of dishes and you're there and you're resenting it and you're saying, oh, the, you know, how rude people are these days, they, you know. Okay, notice what's going on here. Selfishness, right? You're concerned about yourself. Think, well, this 
task was assigned by God. Ultimately, that's a poetic way of expressing a profound truth. Your whole life is assigned by God. Everything you do is a manifestation of that will, that intelligence, that Tao that runs through everything. So instead of thinking, poor me, I'm stuck with this, realize, oh, this is the task at hand. It's fallen to me. How would I perform this task for my lover? Meticulously. With joy. If it's a task for God, if it's for service for God. Not only will it make you a much better dishwasher, but it will convert dishwashing into a mnemonic device for remembering God. Do you see what I'm talking about here? Any job you can think of. Any task that you have. Maybe you're an executive running a company with huge responsibilities. Doesn't matter. Maybe you're a janitor. Doesn't matter. Mother Teresa of Calcutta once said very beautifully, she said, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in a palace or in the gutter. As long as you didn't put yourself there, you find yourself in the situation and in the gutter, there are certain responsibilities. You help people in the gutter. If you're in a palace, you have responsibilities too. Mother Teresa doesn't want everybody to give up, uh, you know, their jobs and all come conversion Calcutta to pick up the poor in the streets. The world would fall apart. That's not the point. But if you can do your job, whatever your job is, the way Mother Teresa does her job, that's holiness. That is living in the constant recollection and remembrance of God. And don't be ashamed uh, and don't feel uh, it's childish to use a little device like that. To think every job that comes along, oh, God's assigned me to this job. It'll change your attitude about all the things you do. Maybe your job is to work in a factory making bombs for the Nazis. God has assigned you that job. What should you do? You should do what Schindler did. They made bombs that didn't work. You saw the movie Schindler's List. It doesn't mean God didn't assign you to it. You have to find what is the appropriate response. It doesn't matter where you are or what sort of job you're faced with. Commitment is not a matter of making a one-time resolution. We often think this way because we're used to making New Year's resolutions. Commitment really means establishing in the heart a permanent reorientation from self to God. Taking attention off self and directing it towards God. It begins with specific sorts of practices of prayer or meditation on a pillow, and then it's extended into every domain of your life. This reorientation requires the application of the third great principle, detachment. It ain't easy to reorientate your life all at once. Reorientate your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, and everything else. Why? Because the self is built out of these very strong attachments. And anybody who underestimates them is making a big mistake. Attachments that you don't even know you have until you start trying to practice detachment. 
Attachment to body, objects, and persons is considered fatal to a seeker for liberation. He who has completely overcome attachment is ready for the state of liberation. That's Shankara, one of the great Hindu mystics. Meister Eckhart, one of the great Christian mystics, says, So detachment is the best of all virtues, for it purifies the soul and cleanses the conscience and enkindles the heart and awakens the spirit and stimulates our longings and shows us where God is. Ooh, isn't that interesting? We think of detachment as being some sort of cold, stoic practice. What he's saying, what detachment leads to is enkindles the heart, stimulates longing, and shows you where God is. Because detachment is that process of purifying the heart, of getting rid of the impediments. So, how do you practice detachment? What is the essence of practicing detachment? Listen to Rabia. Rabia is a great mystic of Islam. She says, I am qualified to work as a doorkeeper, for what is inside me I don't let out. What is outside me I don't let in. If anything comes in, it goes right out again. It has nothing to do with me at all. I am a doorkeeper of the heart, not a lump of clay. What does it mean to be a doorkeeper of the heart? What does she mean by this? Let's, let's go through this. This is important. I am qualified to work as a doorkeeper for what is inside me I don't let out. What do you think she means by that? I would say the God part. The God part, yes. The attention. The um, remembrance. It's not dissipated. She doesn't let it just go all over the place. What is outside me I don't let in. The objects of desire and attachment. She doesn't let their hooks get in, you might say. Do you know what I mean? The whole prohibition against worshipping idols at an esoteric level is what do we worship in life? What is the treasure where our heart is, as Jesus said? To worship, by the way, means to be orientated towards what is worthy. If we're worshipping money, we're not worshipping God. If we're worshipping physical beauty, we're not worshipping God. Fame, safety, security, examine your own heart. What is it that you worship? Where does your attention go? What is it that you think about, worry about all day long? It's probably not one thing, it's probably a, a whole variety of things, or a whole smorgasbord. You let them all into your heart. They're like a little pantheon of idols that have been set up in your heart. And you worship them. Yes, you do. Don't let those idols into the heart. If anything comes in, it goes right out again. Being a doorkeeper of the heart isn't about standing there like some macho warrior. It's about cultivating an emptiness. Thoughts are going to arise, feelings are going to arise, desires are going to arise, all these things are going to arise, but can you keep the door open? So they, they go right through, do you know what I mean? There you are sitting on your pillow and you're focused on God, and uh, the thought comes in, oh my gosh, I'm having five people over for dinner tonight, what should I serve? 
fine. If you stop and start uh, arguing with that thought or trying to suppress it or repress it or whatever, you're going to be completely distracted from God. If you're a doorkeeper, you say, hello, goodbye. Right? There you are praying and some terrible memory arises about something bad you did and how guilty you feel. And then your mind starts thinking, oh, God will never love me or something like that. Forget it. If you're a good doorkeeper, you go, hello, memory, goodbye. It's not about repression. Detachment is never about repression. But it is about paying close attention and not letting any of these uh, selfish desires take up residence in your heart. Now, listen to something very interesting. In uh, Orthodox Christian practice, they have a practice they call sobriety, which Theophane describes this way. With sobriety, we observe movements that come out of the heart itself. The rule of sobriety is, stand at the door of the heart and watch carefully everything that enters or goes out from there. Especially, do not let your actions be prejudiced by selfish desire, for all evil comes thence. Now, I guarantee you, I can almost 90% guarantee you, Theophane the Recluse did not read Rabia. In fact, Theophane Recluse probably thinks Rabia is a, is a heathen on her way to hell. And Rabia, she never met Theophane because he lived several centuries after her, probably is convinced that he is an infidel. But how is it that they both discovered being a doorkeeper of the heart? Sobriety is to stand at the door of the heart and watch carefully everything that enters or goes out from there. Isn't he saying exactly what Rabia said? Don't you think if you could have put those two down in the same room together and gotten rid of the theology and all that, and they started really talking about their practices, they would see that they're talking about the same thing? How amazing. This is why I say mystics have a universal truth. Not only the great truth, but the practices. They work. They have worked for generations and generations. That's why they're passed down. That's why they're cultivated. Buddhists would recognize the same practice as the practice of mindfulness. That's what being a doorkeeper of the heart is, being mindful. Watching what arises, watching what uh, leaves, watching what comes in and watching what goes out. This is what we try to contemplate just in a meditative practice. Watching the mind. Taking the breath and focusing on the breath gives you an opportunity to watch the mind from a distance, so to speak, to stand outside it metaphorically speaking, and you watch what comes and goes. If you don't become a doorkeeper of the heart, chaos reigns. You're totally identified with all this stuff. It's a little bit of stepping back. This is, again, something you can practice all day long. Not only when you're praying, that's where you start the practice. When you're driving to work or back, what's going on in your head? in your heart. Watch. Very good time to practice it. Eventually you can learn to practice it in the midst of arguments. Somebody insults you and you can see that energy arise, you'll see it take this hostile, aggressive form and you have an opportunity to redirect it. You have an opportunity to say, ah, here I am. God has assigned me this argument. This is the work to do. If you're not a doorkeeper, it will come out of your mouth 
as Jesus said, as anger, as an insult, as da-da-da. When you become attentive and all this slows down, it's like watching everything in slow motion. You get this openness of heart and mind. Detachment is simply letting go of self-concern. Just being free of it. It's such a relief. Everybody thinks detachment is such an awful practice. But it's the most joyful of all the practices when you finally get the knack of it. Just to let go of all that. To always be concerned about yourself. To always be concerned how you look, how you feel, how you, what you're eating, what you're sleeping on. Da-da-da-da, that everything's arranged. It's such a burden. Just to let it go. Who cares? You're going to die anyway. There's a reasonable place for concern about your body and so forth. You've got to feed the old donkey. I feed my cats and stuff. But this obsessive, excessive concern, it drives us nuts. I mean that quite literally. Forget it. Let it go. The whole world opens up. Just like a, an oyster opens up and there's this fantastic pearl inside. You know, it's nice to hear people say that, but you have to go find the places in your own life, the very specific impurities. You have to find them, identify them, locate them, and then let them go. That's all. Hello, goodbye. In and out. It's like opening the windows and the doors of your house on a summer day, you know, letting the breeze blow in and stuff. Theophane goes on to say, It is necessary to go on working until our appetite exclusively for things material, sensory, and visible disappears. Notice he said exclusively. He doesn't say all oh, your appetite, your hunger is going to disappear or something like that. And instead, we begin to thirst and to search only for what is spiritual, pure, and divine. Instead of earthliness, the heart comes to be filled with a sense of being but a pilgrim on earth whose whole longing is for his heavenly home. Very interesting. This is how detachment awakens this yearning. As long as you're yearning and longing for all these worldly things, there's no longing left over for God. People think, oh, if I get detached, then I'll just be cold. I won't want anything. That's not true. When you give all this stuff up, another deeper longing arises, emerges. None of this stuff will satisfy you anymore once that is awakened. It's not that it's bad. It's not that you won't be able to deal with it or something. But you won't look to it for ultimate satisfaction you start to get a glimpse of that which can give you ultimate satisfaction. And that is what awakens this longing, this yearning. As you clear out these impediments, you start to see that God in the heart. In just glimpses at first, flashes here and there, a sense of a presence, a sense of a depth opening out into infinity. A sense of a love coming back, an embrace. Ananda Moyamai says, and this is very important psycho-spiritually, by the keen sense 
of want of the divine presence, a desperate yearning ensues, and this will open the way to self-realization. First of all, the longing comes not when God is there, but when God isn't there. Once you've had an introduction to God, once you've met God, doesn't mean that now God's going to be around all the time for you. Another way of putting that is when we start to clean these impediments to the heart, you get a little glimpse, but they close over again. God is there all the time, but we don't always see God. Let me put it that way. That's what creates the longing. If you, if you meet somebody and you have a few dates and you fall madly in love, and then they have to go off on a business trip, you can't wait till they get home. You write them letters and you call them on the phone and da-da-da-da-da and you're completely distracted and all your friends say, what's the matter with you? And so, oh, I'm in love. I just can't stop thinking about that person. It's the absence that fires this. And what does this do? This brings to the path this very powerful motivation for the last principle, which is surrender. When this longing really gets fired up, when this yearning really takes over, then you start to be willing to do anything. You know, this is reflected in love as it used to be conceived in the uh, medieval times by the troubadours, not as it's conceived today, of course. Today, love is, I get what I want, you get what you want, and if it doesn't quite work out, we go our separate ways. Amour in the Middle Ages is the whole cult of, uh, first of all, A, having to prove your love. The knights had to go out and prove their love to their ladies. The ladies didn't just give them their favor. They had to go slay dragons and rescue damsels and, and do all these things. And the, the ladies would put them off. And they'd just fire the poor knight up even more, get more desperate go into swoons and go mad and run off and finally be willing to die. Yes. You know, there's a, there's a story about a disciple who goes to a guru and says, you know, I'm interested in liberation and uh, you're a great guru. I want to become your disciple. And they're standing by a stream and the, the guru grabs the disciple and drags him to the stream and sticks his head underwater and holds him underwater. And the guy starts choking and spluttering. And finally, he lets him up. And, <clears throat> the guy's gasping for breath. And the guru says, when you want God as much as you wanted that breath of air, you come see me. Then he won't need him. <laughs> then he won't need him, right? <laughs> but this is true. Truly speaking, the spiritual path ends in the death of self. You have to be willing to die. Truly speaking, we only die for what we love. You know, most of you aren't willing to die for, I don't know, uh, Donald Trump. Is anybody here willing to die for Donald Trump? Raise your hand. No. What? How about your children? Yeah. Okay. See that? What's the difference? You don't love Donald Trump very much, obviously. <laughs> no, really, isn't that true? This is what it's all about. You see, it's not all that complicated. When we take our attention off of ourselves and put it on to God, then we start to meet God. And when we start to meet God, we start to love God. And then this sort of flirtation goes on, you know, this 
veiling and unveiling and so forth. And the more that happens, the more this flame of love develops. Finally, when we are ready to surrender, what happens? Well, this is the hardest principle to talk about, to apply. It's really not something that you can make happen through will, because paradoxically, it's your self-will that has to be surrendered ultimately. But nevertheless, there are some things can be said about it. Here's what Ananda Mayamai says. Abandon yourself to God in all matters without exception. May he do as he pleases with me, who am but a creature of his hands. This should be your attitude of mind. You see, she gives you like a little prayer, a little mantra, a little phrase you could use. In any situation where you're resisting, maybe you get sick and you're resisting this illness, take the attitude, let God do what God wants with me. That doesn't mean you shouldn't go take medicines and so forth. That's not the problem. Take the medicines. But what is the deep attitude in your heart about this? If in your heart you're constantly resisting, you're constantly worried, you're constantly afraid, that's all centered around self. Let it go. Take care of practical business, but in your heart, let it go. Let God do what God wants with you. That's, again, you see, very concrete advice, and it's something you can actually watch your own mind. You can watch your own resistances to situations to what's happening to you, and you can apply that. She goes on to say, in the morning, as soon as you wake up, pray, Lord, accept as thy service everything I shall do today. At night, again, before falling asleep, pray. In self-surrender, I bow to thee, placing my head at thy holy feet. Try to spend the whole day in this spirit. Now, it's very interesting. You see, I've read this before in Sunday talks, and people often ask me about spiritual love and longing and yearning and, and how to inspire it and so forth. And no one's ever come back to me and said, you know, I tried this. You see? I mean, if you can't think of any prayers of your own, you could take Anandamoyama. She wouldn't mind. She's not going to go sue you for plagiarism or something. No, it's free. It's a free gift she's giving away here. She's, she's giving away, you know, diamonds and jewels. Very few people will pick them up, but she's scattering them just freely to the wind. Something you might want to try. See, Lord, accept as thy service everything I shall do today. That's not too hard to remember. And then at night, in self-surrender, I bow to thee, placing my head at thy holy feet. Those are like bookends, the morning and night, and then during the course of the day, just try and stay in that spirit. Sinking yourself into the recollection of God thereby. Now, you see, all these things are quite practical. If you start to do this, that is, pay attention, direct your attention to God, try to make a commitment to do it as much as you can during the course of a day, Practice being a doorkeeper of the heart, so anything that's distracting you comes in and goes out, and you keep your attention there. Then something quite mysterious starts to happen. In Christianity, it's called grace. And Theophane describes it this way. Only one thing is necessary, to give this grace free scope to act. Grace receives free scope insofar as the ego is crushed 
and the passions uprooted. The more our heart is purified, the more lively become our feelings for God. And when the heart is fully purified, then this feeling of warmth towards God takes fire. What would that be like? Catherine of Genoa describes in her own experience. She's writing about herself, although it's in the third person. She says, A ray of God's love wounded her heart, making her soul experience a flaming love arising from the divine fount. At that instant, she was outside herself, beyond intellect, tongue, or feeling. Fixed in that pure and divine love, henceforth she never ceased to dwell in it. Now, there are two things about this. First of all, we read something like that, and we say, oh, look, this happens to these great mystics. Like, oh, if that could happen to me. What would it be like to be fixed in a divine love and never cease to dwell on it? She's not even, at this point, talking about gnosis or ultimate liberation. To go around all your life bathed in love. Have that sense with you always. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? We hear that, but we don't pay any attention to all the steps it took to get there. All the things to do. This is the end. This is where it gets to. Lali Shwari talks about what starting on the lane of love did for her. I entered the blazing furnace of the practice of yoga. Like ice, I melted in the fire of that love. My inner impurities burned away, leaving pure gold. When my mind became pure, like a mirror free of dust, I found God within myself. When I saw him within, I saw that he is everything, and I am nothing. O oh, Lolly, all your life you were deluded. Only God is everywhere. Now, here's an expression of how following the lane of love leads to truth. What she found at the end of this path is truth. What is the truth? There's only God. There is no self. That is the truth that makes you free. There's no self to suffer. There's no self to die. All this is nothing but God. How does this work? How can love, this feeling and this longing, lead you to this truth? Rumi explains it in the most succinct way I've ever heard. Love is that flame which, when it blazes up, burns away everything except the beloved. When everything else is burned away, the truth is obvious. It's not something you figure out in your head intellectually. It's not some new theory about the world. When love has consumed all selfishness, to just look, there it is. You know, uh, on a spiritual path, especially today, many people read about experiences like happened to Catherine of Genoa. This flaming love arises up and so forth. And they uh, look for this to be sparked by something outside themselves. Beautiful spiritual poetry a charismatic teacher, a set of rituals, and all those are valuable. They help. They give you a taste of it. It's great to get inspired, to start to feel that. It gives you a little glimpse. And then they go away, and then they 
feel dry again, and so they go back, and they get another shot. And then they go away, and they feel dry again, they come back. And what they don't realize is that this is just a taste of what is in your own heart. You have to do the work of your own heart. Rabia says, wake up the heart. That's what the work is. You've got to get beyond that stage if you really want to make this your own, this love, this longing, this yearning. If you want to feel that, you have to do some work here. It's not complicated work. They're very simple things. And I tried in this talk to focus on these, uh, at least some of very specific practices to try and make this as concrete as possible, to give you something you could take away and some of these things you might try. If you begin with a prayer, concentration prayer, you don't have to have any idea about God, any theological idea about God, but if you have some uh, inkling that there's a greater mystery out there that you could, at least in the beginning, establish some relationship with, that's all you need to know. And pick a name for it, just so you have something to focus on. And follow the advice of these mystics. Try to put all your attention into this. And if you find yourself distracted, repeat it over and over. And then try to remember God, not just when you're praying, but throughout the course of the day. And take the three advices that were given here. One is, keep your prayer going whether it's a repetition of a specific prayer or whether it's that feeling that you get in the prayer. And in relationships, take every relationship, everyone you meet as a precious opportunity for spiritual practice. Instead of thinking as you're standing in line to uh, go to the bank and withdraw your money, oh, there's that crabby old bank clerk I've got to talk to again. So, there's a manifestation of God. Hmm. And then in your work, particularly when you have to do things that you don't like to do. This is what's been given to you in life. The real trick is not to go find some new work. Sometimes you want to find some new work, but that's not really what's ultimately going to make you happy. Whatever work you get, if you bring that dualistic, I like, I don't like mind to it, it's always part of it you're not going to like. Why not change your mind? Then all work is a joy. And finally, become a doorkeeper of the heart. Watch, pay attention to what is going on in your heart. What are you thinking about all day? I, me, mine. If those thoughts are occurring, just open the door. <laughs> Invite them to leave. And then, as Ananda Boyamai said, abandon yourself to God and all that matters. This sounds subtle, but you get the knack of it. It's actually quite easy. It's the most joyful thing in the world. It's instead of turning away from reality, instead of cringing and hiding from reality, whatever comes along, you're open to it. You turn into reality. You face reality. You embrace reality, good or bad. It requires a little madness. You know, Zorba tells this stuffy old Englishman that he works for, he says, boss, he says, you got everything but one thing. And the guy says, what's that? He says, a little madness. 
He says, a man needs a little madness in order to cut the rope and be free. We need a little madness. We need to be a little courageous. We need to be a little daring. This is what faith is all about. We need to have a little leap of faith that the world is not an awful, terrible place, ultimately. That if we turn around and embrace it and accept the invitation to dance, we will discover the joy and ecstasy of that dance. But if we are constantly turning away from it, cringing, uh, 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 well, that is our suffering. All these little practices, these little things, take time to bear fruit. You know, you, everybody in this day and age, we're so impatient. We want instant success, instant results. So you go out and you try your little mantra for a week and say, oh, well, nothing happened. Ugh. Well, it takes more time than that. We're talking about lifelong practices. But if you begin to do this, even just in the littlest ways that you can, if you make a sincere effort and continue and, and keep that commitment and keep up the practice, you will become a lover of God. That love, that longing, and that yearning will arise. And God will do the rest. But if you in no way are a lover, well, here's what Rumi says. If you have not been a lover, count not your life as lived, for on the day of reckoning it will not be counted. So I will leave you with that thought.